the best school year ever. The herdsmen back again. When we studied the Old West, everybody had to do a special report on a cowboy's life or famous Indian chiefs or notorious outlaw families like the James brothers. Boomer Malone picked the James brothers, but then he couldn't find them in the children's encyclopedia. That's all right, Boomer, Miss Kemp said. It doesn't have to be the James brothers. Pick another outlaw family. So Boomer did. He picked the herdsmen's. Of course, the herdsmen's weren't in the Old West, and they weren't in the children's encyclopedia either. They were right there in Woodrow Wilson's school, all six of them spread out, one to a class, because the only teacher who could put up with two of them at once would have to be a Miss King Kong. My father said, I bet that was the teacher's in the teacher's contracts with sick leave and medical benefits, only one herdsman at a time. Boomer's paper was the best one. Three whole pages of a crime of one crime after another. He should have gotten A plus, but Miss Camp made him read made him do the whole paper over. I'm ashamed of you, Boomer, she said, calling your own schoolmates an outlaw family. The herdsmen didn't care. They knew they were outlaws. So did Miss Camp, but I guess she had to pretend they were like everybody else. They weren't, and if they had been around the Old West, they would have burned it down or blown it up, and we wouldn't have to study about it. Plus, of course, we shouldn't have to live with the herdsmen's every day in school and out. Chapter 1 Unless you're somebody like Huckleberry Finn, The first day of school isn't too bad. Most kids by then are bored with summer and itchy from mosquito bites and poison ivy and nothing to do. Your sneakers are all worn out and you can't get new ones till school starts and your mother is sick and tired of yelling at you to pick things up and you're sick and tired of picking the same things up. Plus, the first day of school is only a half day for kids. My little brother, Charlie, once asked my mother what the teachers do the rest of the day. They get things ready, books and papers and lessons. That's not what Leroy Herdman says, Charlie told her. Leroy says as soon as the kids are gone, they lock all the doors and order pizza and beer. Well, they don't, Mother said. And how would Leroy know anyway? He forgot something, Charlie said, and he went back to get it, and he couldn't get in. They saw him coming and locked the doors, Mother said. Wouldn't you? Well, yes, anyone would, because the herdsmen's, Ralph, Imogene, Leroy, Claude, Ollie, and Gladys, were the worst kids in the history of the world. They weren't honest or cheerful or industrious or cooperative or clean. They told lies and smoked cigars and set fire to things and hit little kids and cursed and stayed away from school whenever they wanted to, and wouldn't learn anything when they were there. They were always there, though, on the first day, so you always knew right away that this was going to be another exciting Herdman year in the Woodrow Wilson Elementary School. At least there was only one of them in each grade, and since they never got kept back, you always had the same one to put up with. I had Imogene, and what I... What I did was stay out of her way, but it wasn't easy. 
This time, she grabbed me in the hall and shoved an oatmeal box in my face. Hey, she said, you want to buy a science project? I figured that Imogene's idea of a science project would probably explode or catch fire or smell really bad or be alive and bite me. And in fact, I could hear something squealing and screeching around in the oatmeal box. Miss Camp already wrote this year's assignment on the board, I said, and it isn't a science project. Fine. Time to tell me, Imogene grunted. What is it? The assignment. She shook her oatmeal box. Is it mice? So I was half right. Imogene's science project was alive, but it probably wouldn't bite me unless it was a great big mice and I didn't want to find out. No, I said. It's about people. Mice would be better, Imogene said. Later that morning, Miss Kemp explained her assignment and I thought Imogene might be right because the assignment sounded weird. For this year's projects, she said, we're going to study each other. That's the assignment on the blackboard. Compliments for classmates. All over the room, hands were going up and kids were saying, huh? And what does it mean? And how many pages? But Miss Kemp ignored all this. It means exactly what it says, she said. You're to think of a special compliment for each person in this class. And please don't groan. A lot of people did anyway, because this is the assignment for the year. You have all year to think about it. And next June, before the last day of school. You'll draw names from a hat and think of more compliments for just that one person. Somebody asked if it could be a famous person instead. And somebody else asked if it could be a dead famous person like George Washington. Miss Camp said no. This is a classroom project, so it has to be people in this class. We know all about George Washington's good points, but she looked around and picked on Boomer. We don't know all of Boomer's good points. More important, Boomer probably doesn't know all his good points. How many compliments, Junior Jacobs wanted to know. Up to you, Miss Kemp said. Alice Wendelecken raised her hand. Would beautiful hair and shiny hair count as one compliment? This sounded to me as if Alice planned to compliment herself, which would save someone else the trouble. But Miss Kemp said, I'm not talking about beautiful hair and nice teeth, Alice. I mean characteristics, personal qualities, something special. This, I could, this could be hard, I thought. Take Albert Pelfrey. When you think of Albert Pelfrey, you think fat. Even Albert thinks fat. It's hard to think anything else. So I'd really have to study Albert to find something, some special personal quality that wasn't just about being fat. And besides, Albert, there were 28 other people, including Imogene Herdman. What's a compliment, Imogene asked me. It's something nice you tell someone, like if someone is especially helpful or especially friendly or especially clean, she said. Okay, Imogene frowned, but mice would still be better. Mice would probably be easier for Imogene because the herdsmen, herdsmen always had animals around. As far as I know, they weren't mean to animals, but the animals they weren't mean to were mean all by themselves, like their cat, which was crazy and had to be kept on a chain because it bit people. Now and then you would see Mrs. Herdman walking the cat around the block on its chain, but she worked two shifts at the shoe factory and didn't have much time left over to hang around the house and walk the cat. There wasn't any Mr. Herdman. Everybody agreed that after Gladys was born, he just climbed on a freight train and left town. But some people said he did it right away, and some people said he waited a year or two. 
Gladys probably bit him, my friend Alice Wendelikin said. Not if she was a baby, I asked. Babies don't have any teeth. She probably had hard gums. Alice knew that she was talking about because Gladys bit her all the time. Mrs. Wendelikin always poured iodine all over bites, so Alice had to go around for days with big brown splotches on her arms and legs. Alice was always afraid she would die anyway of Gladys' bite and have to be buried looking splotched up and ugly instead of beautiful in her blue and white dress with ruffles. It wasn't all that special to get, get, get bitten by Gladys. She bit everybody, including my little brother Charlie. Charlie came home yelling and screaming like Gladys bit him. And Gladys came too, which shows how fearless they were. Any other kid who bit a kid and broke the skin and drew blood would go hide somewhere, but not Gladys. Gladys Herman, it's always your whole name when my mother is mad. Do you know what I think about a little girl who bites people? I think she ought to have to wear a sign around her neck that says, Beware of Gladys. I guess mother thought that would be real that would really put Gladys in her place. But Gladys just said, Okay, and went home and made the sign and wore it for a week. Nobody paid much attention. We didn't need a sign to make us beware that Gladys beware of Gladys. Besides, everything else they did, the herdsmen would steal anything they could carry, and it was surprising what all they could carry. Not just candy and gum and gerbils and goldfish, they even stole Mrs. Johannesson's concrete birdbath for the goldfish, I guess. And last spring, they stole my friend Luella McCluskey's baby brother, Howard, from in front of the grocery store. Of course, Howard wasn't supposed to be in front of the grocery store. Luella was supposed to be babysitting him which she did every Tuesday afternoon while her mother went to the beauty parlor. Luella got paid 50 cents to do this, and on that particular day, we were in the grocery store spending her 50 cents. When we came out, no Howard. The stroller was still there, and that's why we didn't think of the herdsmen's right away. Usually, if you miss something, you would just naturally figure the herdsmen's had it. But when, the, when they stole a thing, they always stole all of the thing. It wasn't like them to take the baby and leave the stroller. Luella turned the stroller over and looked underneath it as if she thought Howard might have fallen through, which was pretty dumb. Then we walked up and down the street hollering for Howard, which was also dumb. How could Howard answer? He couldn't even talk. He couldn't walk either or crawl very much. He couldn't get out of the stroller in the first place. Well, somebody must have taken him, Luella said. Some stranger has just walked off with my baby brother. You better call the policeman, I said. No, I don't want to. They could get my mother out of the beauty parlor, and I don't want her to know. She'll know when you come home without Howard, I said. I won't go home, not until I find him. Now let's just think, who would take Howard? I can't imagine who would take Howard. Even my mother said Howard was the homeliest baby she'd ever laid eyes on. But she did say that he would probably be just fine once he grew some hair. That was his main trouble, having no hair. There he was, bald as an egg. And Mrs. McCluskey kept rubbing his head with Vaseline to make hair grow. So when you looked at Howard, all you saw was shiny, a shiny white head. Not too good. Probably someone who just loves babies, Lola said. But that could be anybody. It would be easier to think of someone who hates babies if you hated them you certainly wouldn't steal one. Then Luella had an idea. Let's just walk down the street, she said, pushing the stroller. Maybe somebody has seen Howard 
And when they see us when, with an empty stroller, they'll figure out we're looking for him and tell us where he is. I was pretty disgusted. Luella, I said, you know that won't happen. But it did. The first person we met was my little brother, Charlie. And the first thing he said is, if you're looking for Howard, the herdsmen's have got him. Luella looked relieved, but not very. And I didn't blame her. If you had to choose between the total stranger having your baby brother and the herdsmen's having him, you would pick the total stranger every time. What have they done with him, Luella asked. They're charging kids a quarter to look at him. Why would anybody pay a quarter to look at Howard? I said, we can look at Howard anytime. They don't tell you it's Howard. They got a sign up that says 25 cents. See the amazing tattooed baby, 25 cents. They tattooed him, Luella yelped. My mother will kill me. Actually, they didn't tattoo him. What they did was wipe off the Vaseline and draw pictures all over his head with a waterproof marker. Charlie was dumb enough to fall for their sign. He paid the quarter to see an amazing tattooed baby. And of course, he was mad as could be when it turned out to be Howard McCluskey with pictures drawn, drawn all over his head. So he tugged along behind us, insisting that Luella got, get his money back. But we both knew that Luella would have all she could do to just get Howard back. If it was anything but the baby, she said, I wouldn't even try to get it back. Not from the herdsmen's. They already collected six fifty. Charlie said. You ought to make them pay some of that for the use of Howard. I'll probably have to pay them, Luella grumbled. She was right. When we got to the herdsmen's, there were three or four kids lined up outside the fence. And Luella marched up and said to Imogene Herdman, You give me back my baby brother. But Imogene pretended not to hear her and just went on collecting money. You went. You want to see the tattooed baby, she jiggled the box at Luella. It'll cost you a quarter. It's no tattooed baby, Luella said. It's my little brother. Imogene squinched her eyes together. How do you know? I just know. You do not. It could be anybody's baby. It could be the same baby you... It could be some baby you never heard of. It'll cost you a quarter to find out. Sure enough, it was Howard, and he was a sight. The whole top of his head was red and green and blue and purple with pictures of dogs and cats and trees and tic-tac-toe games. I don't know what you're so mad about, Leroy Herdman said. He looks a lot better than he did. In a way, Leroy was right. Howard looked a lot more interesting, but nobody expected Mrs. McCluskey to think so. He took Howard out back of my house and we tried to wash off his head, which is how we found out the pictures were all waterproof. Now what do I do? Luella asked. Tell your mother the herdsmen's did it, Charlie said. She'll just want to know why I let them do it and how they got a hold of him in the first place. Maybe we should use some soap. We tried all kinds of things on Howard, but the only thing that worked at all was the scouring powder, and that didn't work too well. It made his head gritty, and it didn't take off the purple. If you don't stand too close to him, Luella said, and then squint your eyes, does the purple look like look to you like veins? It didn't to me, but after all, I told Luella, I know what it is. Your mother doesn't know what it is, so maybe it will look like veins to her. It didn't. Mrs. McCluskey was so mad that she got a sick headache and spots before her eyes and had to lie down for two days. The first thing she did after she got up was to go to work on Howard's head, trying to get the purple off, and she discovered two or three patches of soft fuzz. 
So then she wasn't mad at the herdsmen anymore. She said that something about all the drawing or the magic marker ink must have started his hair to grow. But she was still mad at Luella, which didn't seem fair. After all, it could have been the scouring powder. I said that to my mother, and I knew right away that it was a mistake because she said, what scouring powder? And then Beth Bradley came back here, what scouring powder? So then I got put it, punished for putting scouring powder on Howard's head. And Luella got punished for leaving him in front of the grocery store. And Charlie got punished by not having any choco whoopee bars from the ice cream man till next week. That's what your quarter was for, Mother told him. Next time you'll think twice before you throw away your quarter on something silly. Of, of course, Howard got some hair, but he was just a baby and he didn't care whether he had any hair or not. The herdsmen's, who caused all the trouble in the first place, got $6.50. If anybody but the herdsmen had stolen a baby and scribbled all over his head and then charged people money to look at him, they would have been shut up in the house for the rest of their natural lives. But since it was the herdsmen's, most people just said how lucky Mrs. McCluskey was to get Howard back all in one piece, and that was that. The truth is that no one wanted to fool around with them, so you knew that unless they tried to hold up the First National Bank or burn down the public library, you weren't going to see the last of them, especially if you had to go to Woodrow Wilson School and be in the same class with Limogene and figure out something good to say about her before the end of the year. The Best School Year Ever, Chapter 2 A lot of people, like Alice Wendelkin's mother, thought the Herdmans ought to be in jail. Kids are not, but I knew that wouldn't happen. Our jail is just two cells in the basement of the town hall, and the Herdmans aren't allowed in the town hall anymore, since Gladys and Ollie put all the frogs in the drinking fountain there. They were little tiny frogs, and Miss Farley, the town clerk, drank two or three of them off the top of the bubbler by mistake. She didn't have her glasses on, she said, and didn't see them till somebody hollered, Evelyn, stop! You're drinking frogs! Miss Farley was hysterical. She said she could feel them jerking and jumping all up and down her windpipe. But even so, she chased Gladys and Ollie all around the block, and she said if she ever caught any Herdmans inside the town hall again, she would put on her roller skates and run them out of town so fast their heels would smoke. Of course they didn't care. What'd she eat our frogs for anyway, Gladys said. It's not our fault she ate our frogs. She'll get warts in her stomach when she can't scratch them. Warts don't itch, Alice Wardlikin told her. These will, Gladys said. We caught the frogs in a patch of poison ivy. The town hall wasn't the only place in town where the Herdmans weren't allowed to get a drink of water or to go to the bathroom or call their mother or anything. They also weren't allowed in the drugstore or the movie theater or the A&P or the Tasty Lunch Diner. They used to be allowed in the post office, but that didn't last. Somebody got a hold of, the, of their school pictures and put them up right next to the wanted posters. And it seemed so natural for them to be there that nobody noticed till Ollie Herdman went up and asked the postmaster, Mr. Blair, how much money he could get for his brother Claude. I don't know what you mean, Mr. Blair said. Some of those people are worth $500, Ollie said. How much can I get for Claude? So Mr. Blair went to see what he was talking about. And sure enough, there were the herdsmen's right up with the bank robbers and the mad bombers and all. 
Mr. Blair had a fit. How did these pictures get up here, he said. Did you put these pictures up here? Ollie said no. It was a big surprise to him. Well, it's a big surprise to me, too, Mr. Blair said. But I can tell you that the FBI is not going to pay you anything for Claude or any of the rest of you either. How did you happen to pick on Claude? Because he's the one I've got, Ollie said. Mr. Blair said later he didn't like the sound of that. I figured he had probably had Clyde tied to a tree somewhere. So he mentioned it to the policeman on the corner and the policeman said he had better go investigate because the with the herdmans, you never could tell. He didn't have to go far. There was a big crowd of people and a lot of commotion halfway down the block. Sure enough, Ollie had shut Claude up in the men's room of the Sunoco station. When the policeman got there, Claude was banging on the door and hollering for someone to let him out. There was a whole big family from South Dakota waiting to get in. The mother said they had driven almost 150 miles looking for a Sunoco station because they were the cleanest. But what good was clean if you couldn't get in? I gave the key to one of the herdsmen, the manager said, and he went off with it. I should have my head examined. But you don't need a key to get out, the policeman said. Why doesn't Claude just open the door? I can't, Claude said. The door's stuck. Ollie claimed later that he didn't have anything to do with that, that he hadn't even planned to shut Claude up in the men's room or anywhere else. But when the door jammed shut, he went off to get help, and that's when he saw the picture at the post office. You were going to get help at the post office, the manager asked. I was going to get my sister Imogene, and she was at the post office. No, Ollie said, she wasn't there. That was a typical Herdman. There was a lie in it somewhere, but you couldn't put your finger on where. Of course, all that was later. In the meantime, Mr. Blair had the Sunoco station manager had to get the fire department to break the door and get Claude out. By the time the South Dakota people had left and a lot of other people who wanted gas got tired of waiting and went somewhere else, and in all the excitement, somebody walked off with two cans of motor oil and a wrench. Herman's probably, but nobody could prove it, just like nobody could prove that Ollie really meant to hand Claude over to the FBI for money. So then the Herdmans weren't allowed in the post office or the Sunoco station, and they got thrown out of the new laundromat the very day it opened. They planned to wash their cat in one of the machines, but they didn't know it would cost money, so they just dropped him in and went off to locate some quarters. Of course, the cat didn't like it in the washing machine, and it made so much noise hissing and spitting and scratching that the manager, Mr. Cleveland, went to see what was wrong. I thought it was a short circuit, he said, or a loose connection, something electrical. That's the kind of noise it was. People said it looked electrical, all right, when the cat... When he opened the lid and the cat shot out its tail and ears and all its hair standing straight up, it skittered around all over the tops of machines and clawed through everybody's laundry baskets and knocked over boxes of soap and bottles of bleach and big baskets of flowers that said, good luck to the laundromat. Finally, someone opened the door and the last they saw of the cat, it was roaring down the street, all tangled up in a tablecloth. Of course, the laundromat was a mess, and all the customers were mad and couldn't find their clothes and wanted their money back for the stuff the cat had spilled. Pretty soon, people began to sneeze from all the cat hair and soap powder in the air, and one lady broke out in big red splotches all over because she was allergic to cats. Mr. Cleveland sent everyone outdoors till things settled down. But things didn't settle down. 
Santoro's Pizza Parlor was across the street, and when Mr. Santoro saw all these people coming out of the laundromat sneezing and coughing and choking, he yelled, What's the matter? Is it a fire? And somebody yelled, No, cat hair. But Mr. Santoro thought they said bad air. He figured there was something wrong with the new plumbing connections, maybe a gas leak, and he ran to the top of the street to warn people to stay away in case of an explosion. Some of the people he warned away were the Herdmans, Imogene, Ralph, and Leroy, on their way back with 50 cents for the washing machine. You children get away from here, he said. The laundromat may explode. I guess they were pretty surprised. They probably figured the cat did it, but they didn't know how. They also probably figured that if the cat was smart enough to blow up a laundromat, it was smart enough to get away, so they just left. Mr. Santoro called the fire department too, and they came right away. But of course there wasn't any fire, and there wasn't any gas leak, and by the time there wasn't any cat, and there weren't any herdsmen's either. Just a lot of angry customers and a reporter from the newspaper who went around interviewing everybody. Most of the people didn't even know what happened because it happened so fast, so the newspaper story was pretty mysterious. Laundromat opening marred by unusual disturbance, it said. Firemen respond to alarm, anonymous alarm, and customers describe wild animal. My father said at least they got that part right. Mr. Cleveland had to clean up the mess and replace everybody's stuff and, re and pay for the blotched-up lady to get an allergy shot. So he was pretty mad. Mr. Santoro was mad because they called him anonymous, and of course the firemen were mad because... They knew the herdsmen's did whatever it was. In the meantime, the herdsmen's are home waiting for the cat to show up. The cat, crazier than usual, because it was all wrapped up in a tablecloth, was tearing all over town, yelling and spitting and scratching at anything that got in its way. It ran in the barber shop and streaked up one side of the chair where Mr. Perry was shaving someone. All of a sudden, Mr. Perry said, there was a cat, so I lathered the cat by mistake. Miss my customer and lather the cat. Then the cat ran through the lobby of the movie theater and picked up some popcorn there. And by, the, and by that time, you couldn't tell it was or what it had ever been. It finally clawed its way up a tree in front of the library, and the librarian, Miss Grabner, called the fire department to come and get it down. I think it's a cat, she said, and it looks like it's been through a war. No, the fire chief said. It's been through a washing machine, and as far as I'm concerned, it can stay until the, in the tree till the middle of next year. Of course, Miss Grabner was mad about that. The only people who weren't mad were the herdsmen's, because when the cat finally came home, it was clean and fluffy from all the shaving ladder, and that's what they wanted in the first place. The Best School Year Ever, Chapter 3 Naturally, my mother wasn't too crazy about the herdsmen, since they were always mopping up the floor with Charlie. But she had too much to do, she said, to spend time complaining about them. She would leave that to Alice Wenglickin's mother, who was so good at it. Mrs. Wenglickin complained about them all the time, to everybody. It was her second favorite subject, besides how smart Alice was, and how pretty, and how talented and how it would all go to waste if Gladys Herdman bit her to death. Every time you turned around, Mrs. Wendelkin was volunteering Alice to be the star of something, the main fairy, or the head elf, or the clean-up clean our streets poster girl. 
And when the Chamber of Commerce brought a respirator for the hospital, they put a picture of it in the paper. And sure enough, there was Alice hooked up to the respirator. Mrs. Wendell Lickin said she didn't have anything to do with that. The photographer just looked around and said, I wonder if that pretty girl would be willing to pose with the respirator. But nobody believed her. Alice didn't get any applause for this either, but she carried the picture around anyway and showed it to anyone who would hold still. She showed it to Imogene Herdman at recess, and Imogene, Herdman, Imogene took one look and hollered, Get away from me! Don't touch me! Whatever you've got, I don't want it, which brought the school nurse in a hurry in case Alice had smallpox or something. It emptied the playground in a hurry, too. Everybody figured that it, if it was something Imogene Herdman was scared of to catch, it would wipe out the rest of us because ordinary germs didn't even slow the Herdmans down. They never got mumps or pink eye or colds or stomach aches or anything. A snake once bit Leroy Herdman, and Leroy's legs swelled up to a little bit, but then that was all. The snake died. Leroy brought it to school and tied it all up and down the light cord in the teacher's supply closet. And about five minutes later, the kindergarten teacher, Mrs. Newman, came in and pulled the cord. She had all the day's helpers with her, six kindergarten kids carrying pots of red finger paint. And when Miss Newman screamed, they all dropped their pots and finger paint. Flew every, all over the place. Then somebody upset two big boxes of chalk, and they all tramped down in that. And when the janitor heard the racket and opened the door, he just took one look and went straight to get the principal. He said there had been some terrible accident, and the supply closet was full of bloody people, apparently all cut up and screaming in pain. By the time the principal got there, Miss Newman had pulled herself together and was herding the little kids down the hall to the washroom, and then the recess bell rang. So the hall was full of kids and teachers calling to Miss Newman, What happened? What happened? And the principal telling everyone to move along, move right along, nothing here to see. Of course, there was plenty to see. The whole thing looked like a big disaster we had just read about in history called the Children's Massacre. In all the commotion, Leroy Herman just walked into the supply closet, untied his snake, and put it in his pocket and walked out again. When we got back from recess, the principal and Miss Newman and the, jan and the janitor and the boys' basketball coach were all crawling around the floor of the supply closet, and Miss Newman was saying, I tell you, there was a snake crawling up the light cord. Of course, they never did find it because nobody looked in Leroy's pocket. I couldn't understand why the snake died, and Leroy didn't, but when I asked my father, he said that Leroy probably stretched his story. A snake bit him, my father said, and then he found a different snake that was already dead. That's what I think. My mother said she bet it wasn't a snake at all, and that Leroy has tied a whole lot of poor worms together, but I decided that Leroy was telling the truth for the first time in his life that the snake was perfectly healthy, bit Roy, Leroy, and immediately died. So maybe Mrs. Wenlikin wasn't far wrong to pour iodine all over Alice, and maybe Alice should shut up about this treatment and just be glad she wasn't dead, like the snake. Two or three days later, Leroy stuck the snake in the third grade pencil sharpener tail first, and that teacher went all to pieces too. It was bad enough, she said, to find a snake in the pencil sharpener, but then she almost sharpened it by mistake. The snake was pretty worn out by then, so they threw it away, but nobody in the third grade would go near the pencil sharpener for the rest of the week. 
My mother's friend, Miss Phillips, worked for the welfare department, and one of her jobs was to check on the Herbins. So mother told her about the snake bite in case Leroy would get some kind of shot for it. But Miss Phillips just said she didn't know any of any shot that would benefit Leroy in any way. All her sympathies were with the snake. I went once to that garage where those kids lived, she said, but I never got inside and I barely got out of the yard alive. It was full of rocks and poison ivy and torn up bicycles and pieces of cars and big holes they dug. I fell in one of the holes and the cat jumped on me out of a window. Good thing I had a hat on or I'd be bald. Now I just drive past the place once a month and if they haven't managed to blow it up or burn it down, I figure they're all right. But a snake bite, my mother said. Don't you think that's unusual? I certainly do, Miss Phillips said. It's the first time something bit one of them instead of the other way around. The whole thing got into the newspaper. Reptile find, found in Woodrow Wilson's school, the article says. Teachers, teachers and students alarmed. That probably meant Miss Newman and all the kindergarten kids' parents seek action. Probably meant Miss... Wenlicken, seeking to get her herdsman expelled or arrested or something. School official inspects premises. Was Mr. Crabtree the principal who stuck his head in the third grade room and said that if one more snake showed up anywhere, he would personally kill it, skin it, cook it, and feed it to whoever was responsible? I don't know whether that would have scared Leroy or not, but it didn't matter anyway because he wasn't there. Ima Jean said he stayed home to bury the snake and she had this messy scribbled up note that said, Leroy is absent at a funeral. I'm sorry to hear that, Imogene, the teacher said. Was it a member of your family? Why aren't you at the funeral? It was a friend of Leroy's, Imogene said. I didn't like him. Mrs. Wendelkin was mad because the newspaper article didn't say it was Leroy Herbin's snake that caused all the trouble. And she was mad at the principal because he wouldn't say so either. I can't prove who the snake belonged to, Mr. Crabtree said. And even if I could, why would I? It wasn't a boa constrictor, you know. And it was dead to begin with. But, I'm, but I guess Mrs. Wendelkin was really out to nail Leroy and she wouldn't give up. Of course it was Leroy's snake. Everybody knows it was Leroy's snake. Why else would he bury it? Why would Leroy Herdman bury someone else's snake? I don't know, Mr. Crabtree was fed up with the snake and Leroy Herbman and Mrs. Wenlikin too. But if he did bury a snake for somebody else, it's the first cooperative thing he's done in his life. And I just think we ought to drop the whole subject, don't you? That would probably have been the end of it, except that Mrs. Wenlikin described this conversation to my mother, who described it to Miss Phillips. Then Miss Phillips went to the school and told Mr. Crabtree that she had a plan to civilize the Herdmans, or at least one of them. It's about the snake, she began, but Mr. Crabtree wouldn't let her say any more. I'll do it, he said. I don't even care what it is you want, just so I don't have to hear any more about that snake. So Leroy got named Good, Good School Citizen of the Month for an act of kindness. The award read, of course, this was one big surprise to everybody, especially Leroy, and it nearly killed Alice Wenlikin, who had piled up more good deeds and good grades and extra credit projects and perfect attendance records than anybody else in the whole history of Woodrow Wilson School and expected to be the good school citizen of the month for the rest of her life. Nobody could figure out what kind of thing Leroy had done, but Miss Phillips told my mother, he buried a snake, mother said, that's it. 
That's it, Miss Phillips said. Well, I guess if you were the snake, you might call it an act of kindness, but I don't understand. I just thought he might have decided to live up to his honor, Miss Phillips explained. He might be a changed person. Mother said she wouldn't count on it. He probably doesn't even know what it is he did. He didn't even do it, Charlie told her. I'm a Jean said he did. Nobody buried the snake. The janitor threw it in the trash masher. I saw him. Well, don't tell anyone, Mother said. Mrs. Wendelkin would never shut up about it. Mother was right about Leroy. He didn't know what he did or how he got to be a good school citizen. And when Charlie wouldn't tell him, he buried Charlie up to his neck in the trash masher barrel, which would have been tough on Charlie if the janitor didn't happen to see him before he mashed the trash. So Leroy wasn't a changed person unless you want to count that he only buried Charlie up to his neck instead of all the way. Chapter 4 The janitor, Mr. Sprague, said that that was that. No more trash masher. He told the principal that we could have trash masher or we could have the Herbmans, but we couldn't have both under one roof. I can't stand around and guard the thing all day, he said. There's six of them and only one of me. And every time I leave the basement to go sweep a floor, they shove something else into it. They already mashed up the fourth grade ant farm and the plastic dinosaur exhibit. And then Leroy went ahead and mashed up the Good School Citizen Award, too, once he found out he couldn't eat it or spend it or sell it to anybody. Alice reported this to her mother, and Mrs. Wenlikin was so disgusted about the whole thing that she resigned from the PTA, which my father said was good news for the PTA. Of course, Mrs. Wendelkin didn't come right out and say, I quit because I'm mad at everybody. She just said it wasn't fair for her to run the PTA talent show because Alice was in it. She said Mother could do that because Mother didn't have any talented children in it. Does that mean we aren't talented or just that we aren't in it? Charlie asked me, and I said, both. Actually, nobody had talented children in it. And they really had to scratch around to get kids to do anything. So it was no Night of a Thousand Stars, which was what all the posters said. Night of a Thousand Stars, an evening of family entertainment, PTA talent show. When my father saw the list of acts, he said he hoped there would be more talent in the refreshments than there was going to be in the show. There weren't any refreshments, Mother told him. This is just an evening of family entertainment. He shook his head. Not unless you have refreshments, it won't be. I guess Mother took another look at the list because that night she called around for people to make cookies and brownies and cupcakes and punch. And the next day the poster said, The Night of a Thousand Stars, An Evening of Family Entertainment, PTA Talent Show with Delicious Refreshments Crowded in at the Bottom. This was a big mistake because refreshments is one long word that all the herdsmen understood. And right away, you knew they'd figure out some way to get at them. They can't, Alice said. They'd have to be in the show and they can't do anything talented. They can steal, Charlie said. Alice looked at him the way my mother looks at the bottom of the hamster cage. That's not a talent, she said. Maybe not, but the herdsmen did it better than anybody else. Still, it was hard to see how they would do it for an audience or what they would call it on the program or what they would steal because there wasn't much left that they hadn't already stolen. 
Last year, they were all absent on October 4th, and we had Arbor Day because for the first three years, the herdsmen stole the trees. And the principal said, at least this year, we'd finally get it planted, even if it died over the winter. Maybe they've got some talent we don't know about, I said. And sure enough, three days later, Gladys Herman took a pair of kindergarten safety scissors and cut Eugene Preston's hair in the shape of a dog. I could have been a cat, though, or a horse, or a pig. Something with four legs and a tail, anyway. Or else, something with five legs and no tail. You had to look right down at the top of his head to see it. But this was what you mostly saw of Eugene anyway, because he was the shortest kid in the second grade, or the first grade, or even kindergarten. So naturally, he got picked on a lot. And if you had to choose which kid in Woodrow Wilson's school would get their hair cut in the shape of a dog for no reason, you would choose Eugene. Of course, he was already a nervous wreck from being the shortest kid around. You knew it wasn't going to calm him down to have people holler, Here, Fido, or here, Spot at him. And if his hair was anything like the rest of him, he would probably be this way for years. So things didn't look good for Eugene. A dog, my father said when he heard about it. I can't believe it looks like a dog. Who says it looks like a dog? The art teacher, Charlie said. I heard her tell the principal. She said if it wasn't, if it just wasn't on Eugene's head, she would display it as an example of a living sculpture. Why don't you tell that to Eugene, mother said. It might make him feel better to know that he's a living sculpture. I don't think so. For one thing, nobody knew what a sculpture was. I helped Eugene look it up in the encyclopedia, but we looked under living instead of sculpture and never got past living sacrifice, which was all about torture, and that sure didn't make Eugene feel better. Come on, Eugene, I said. Don't be crazy. No one's going to make you be a sacrifice. Ha, huh, he said. How about Gladys Herdman? He was really worried, and between being worried and short and having his hair all chopped up, Eugene began to twitch and wiggle and bite his fingernails and bang himself on the head. I can't help it, he said. It makes me feel better. Actually, there wasn't a kid in Woodrow Wilson's school who didn't wiggle or twitch or tie knots in his hair or something. Boomer Malone once ate a whole pencil without even knowing it till he got to the eraser and broke off a tooth. Some kids banged their heads, too, when they didn't have anything else to do. And, of course, the herdsmen banged other kids on the head, but nobody did it as hard as Eugene. This was flas fascinating to Gladys Herdman. She quit hitting him and hollering at him and just followed him around everywhere, waiting for him to knock himself out, we all thought. Why do you do that all the time, she asked him. But Eugene was scared to tell her the truth. He figured if he said, it makes me feel better, she would pound him black and blue and claim it was a good deed. My mother thought Eugene ought to enter the talent show. It would take his mind off his troubles, she said, and there must be something he could do. I couldn't imagine what except maybe stand up on the stage and be short. And I never heard of a show where part of the entertainment was somebody being short. So I was pretty surprised, along with everybody else, to learn that Eugene had a hidden talent that he would perform at the talent show. And then on TV, probably, Gladys Herdman said. Gladys was the one who discovered this talent, but she wouldn't tell anybody what it was, and she wouldn't let Eugene tell anybody about it either, not even his mother. So Mrs. Preston didn't know whether to get him a costume or a guitar 
or elevator shoes or what. My mother didn't know what to put on the stage for him to use. Maybe he needs a microphone, she said. Maybe he needs some special music. I really like to know because I want Eugene to be a success. It would be wonderful, she told us, if Eugene could win first prize in the talent show. What she really meant was it would be wonderful if anybody besides Alice Winlikin won first prize for a change. But I knew that, would ha that wouldn't happen unless Alice broke both arms and could play the piano. I guess Charlie thought it was worth a try, though, because he asked Eugene what he needed for his talent act. He needed walnuts, Charlie reported. But he says he'll bring his own. He doesn't want to. He's scared to be in the talent show, but he's more scared of Gladys. What's he going to do with walnuts, mother asked. I don't know, unless... Maybe he's going to juggle them, Charlie brightened up. That would be good, even if he drops some. That would be good. It seemed to me that if Eugene could juggle anything, he would. we would all know about it. But maybe not. My friend Betty Lou Sampson is double-jointed and can fold herself into a pretzel, but she won't do it in front of people because of being shy. It could be the same way with Eugene, I thought. I also thought he might back out, but on the night of the talent show, there he was, so for once, he had something different to look forward to. There isn't usually anything different or surprising about the talent show. One year, a girl named Bernice Potts signed up to do an animal act, and the animal turned out to be a goldfish, which was different, but then the act turned out to be Bernice talking to the fish and the fish talking back and Bernice telling the audience what the fish said. Charlie loved this, but he was in the first grade then and believed anything anybody told him. Mrs. Wendlikin said this act didn't belong in the talent show because it didn't have anything to do with human talent. Even if the fish could talk, she said, they would just mean the fish was talented, not Bernice. Mrs. Wenlikin didn't think Eugene should be juggling walnuts either, according to Alice. If he can do it, Alice sniffed, which he probably can't. Eugene didn't even try. He came out on the stage carrying a big bowl of walnuts while Mother was introducing him. Our next talented performer, she said, is from the second grade. It's Eugene Preston, and Eugene is going to... Mother never got a chance to finish because Eugene began smashing walnuts on his forehead, one after another, just as fast as he could, and walnut shells flew everywhere. People sitting in the back of the auditorium couldn't figure out what he was doing, and people sitting in the front of the auditorium knew what he was doing, but couldn't believe he was doing it. The principal, who was sitting in the back row, thought kids throwing things at Eugene, so he started up the aisle and ran smack into Mrs. Preston, who was yelling for someone to stop Eugene before he killed himself with walnuts. Nobody heard her. There was too much noise. Kids were jumping up and down and clapping and hollering, Go, Eugene! Go, Eugene! And then, Go, Hammerhead! Go, Hammerhead! Boomer Malone began counting walnuts. 22, 23, 24... And pretty soon everybody was chanting, 36, 37, 38. Boomer, said Mrs. Preston, fainted when Eugene got to 45 walnuts. But she didn't really faint. She just collapsed into a seat moaning something about scrambled brains. Eugene used all his walnuts and then set his bowl down on the stage and walked off. 
He looked taller to me, but that's probably because I was looking up at him for a change. Eugene didn't win first prize, but neither did Alice. Her piano solo was called Flying Fingers, and it would have been pretty flashy, except there were so many walnut shells stuck in the piano keys that she kept having to stop and start over. Eugene was the popular favorite, but I guess the judges didn't want to reward a scramble your brains act in case that did eventually happen to them. So they gave the first prize to the kindergarten rhythm band, which was probably the best thing to do. It made all the kindergarten mothers happy, and it didn't make anyone else very mad. Of course, kids were all over Eugene, telling him that he should have won and that he was the best and wanting to feel his head. Did you always crack nuts that way, someone asked? And Eugene said no, that it was Gladys Herdsman idea. Why, Charlie said. What was in it for Gladys? If you didn't know any better, you might think that Gladys felt guilty because of Eugene's dog haircut. But no one at the Woodrow Wilson School would think that. So when we went to get the delicious refreshments, no one was very surprised to find they were all gone. Mrs. McCluskey was in charge of the food, and when Mother asked her what happened, she said, I just put the last plate of cupcakes on the table when Gladys Herdman ran in here yelling that Eugene Preston had gone crazy in the auditorium and was trying to kill himself. Now, normally, I wouldn't pay attention to anything a Herdman told me, but I could hear a lot of noise and stamping around and people yelling, Eugene, Eugene. So naturally, I went to see, she shrugged. I still don't know what happened to Eugene, but I know what happened to the refreshments. Everybody knew what happened to the refreshments, but as usual, you couldn't prove anything because the evidence was gone and Gladys was gone. Mrs. Wendelkin didn't agree. She said the evidence was Eugene. It was obvious that Gladys Herdman got that poor little boy to knock himself silly and cause a big commotion. And then she went to the cafeteria and walked off with every last cookie. Maybe so, but Eugene didn't knock himself silly, and you couldn't feel very sorry for him because he was a big celebrity with his name in the newspaper. Unusual performance by plucky Eugene Preston earned standing ovation at Woodrow Wilson Talent Show. The article also mentioned the kindergarten rhythm band, but not by name. Too many of them, the reporter said, and not by musical number. Could have been almost anything. Besides, Eugene wasn't even Eugene anymore, except to his mother and the teachers. And sometimes even the teachers called him Hammerhead, just like everyone else. Chapter 5 Every now and then I would remember about the assignment for the year, compliments for classmates, and turn to that page in my notebook. So far I had thought up compliments for six people, including Alice. For Alice, I put down, important. I'm not sure I'd call that a compliment, my mother said. Alice would, I told her. Actually, Alice would probably consider it a natural fact, like the earth is round, the sky is blue. Alice Wankleden is important. Alice began being important right away in the first grade because she was the only first grade kid who had ever been inside the teacher's room. So whenever something had to be delivered there, Alice got to deliver it. I have a note to go to the teacher's room, our teacher would say, way up on the third floor. So Alice, I'll ask you to be my messenger since you know exactly where it is. Then Alice would stand up and straighten her dress and pat her hair 
and carried the note in both hands out in front of her as if it was news from God. Most of all, she would never tell what was in the room. Whenever the teachers didn't have anything else to do, they went and hid in the teacher's room, but nobody else ever got in there. You couldn't see in either because the door was wood and frosted glass almost to the top. Boomer Malone once got Charlie to climb on his shoulders and look in, but all Charlie could see was a sign that said, Thank God it's Friday, and another that said, Thank God it's June. This got spread around school, and kids went home and told about the swear words in the teacher's room. So after that, they put a curtain, and nobody could see anything. There isn't anything to see, my mother said, just some chairs and tables and a sofa and a big coffee pot and a little refrigerator. No TV, Charlie said. No TV. What do they do in there? Mother sighed. I suppose they relax, she said, and talk to each other and have lunch. That's not what Imogene Herdman says, Charlie mothered. Mar muttered. Well, mother said, if you believe that, if you believe what Imogene Herdman says, you'll believe anything. They go in there to smoke cigarettes and drink Cokes, was what Imogene had said. And if somebody has a cake, they put it in a Sears Roebuck sack and pretend it's something they bought. And then they go in there and eat it where nobody can see them. And they don't let anybody in who doesn't know the password. Charlie brightened right up. What's the password? They pick a new one every day, Imogene said. And then they put it in in the morning announcements like, in what's for lunch, once it was macaroni and cheese. I figured Imogene was making this up as she went along, so you had to be impressed with her imagination. I even got out my notebook and started to write it down. Imogene Herman has imagination. But then I realized it wasn't imagination. It was just a big lie. I also realized that finding a compliment for Imogene Herdman was probably the hardest thing I'd have to do all year, and I'd better start thinking about it. Of course, Charlie kept waiting for macaroni and cheese to show up in the morning announcements. He was going to walk past the teacher's room and say, macaroni and cheese, and see what happened. But the next time it was on the lunch menu, Charlie was stuck in the no nurse's room with a nosebleed and didn't get to try it. Imogene told him it didn't make any difference because the password that day was softball. Did you try it, Charlie asked. Did you get in? I don't want in, Imogene gave this dark, squinty-eyed look. If a kid gets in that room, they'll never let him out. Remember Pauline Ellison? Charlie shook his head. Neither does anyone else. She got in the teacher's room. Remember Kenneth Weaver? Do you see Kenneth Weaver lately? No, because he got the mumps. That's what you think. Kenneth doesn't have the bumps. Kenneth got caught in the teacher's room. I guess this was too much even for Charlie. I don't believe it, he said. I'm a Jean grin, her girl Godzilla grin. Neither did Kenneth, she said. I told him he better not go near the teacher's room, but he did it anyway. For once, nobody believed I'm a Jean. Nobody told her so, but Alice Wenlicken said, from now on, Imogene couldn't shove people around anymore because she was a proven liar. And no matter what she said, everybody would laugh at her and maybe knock her down. Nobody believed that either, but it sounded great. Just wait till Kenneth comes back, everybody said. But Kenneth didn't come back. 
Charlie hunted me up at recess with this news. He's never coming back, he said. The teacher gathered up his books and moved Bernadette Slocum to his seat and said, Well, we'll certainly miss Kenneth, won't we? It's just like Imogene said. Oh, come on, Charlie, I said. You know they haven't got him shut up in the teacher's room. Still, you had to wonder. First, Imogene said Kenneth was gone, and then he was gone. What if Imogene was right? I wasn't the only one who thought about this, and I wasn't the only one who found reasons to stay away from the teacher's room, and even to stay away from the whole third floor. Kids suddenly couldn't climb stairs for one reason or another, or kids got dizzy if they went above the second floor. Alice had what she called a twisted toe and limped around holding on to chairs and tables all on one floor naturally. But Luella McCluskey told the real truth for everyone. I don't think Imogene Herbman is right, she said, and I don't think kids disappear into the teacher's room, but maybe she is and maybe they do, and I'm not going to take any chances. Then two teachers and a district supervisor and Mrs. Wenlikin all got locked in the teacher's room by accident. They were in there for an hour and a half, banging on the door and yelling and even throwing things out the window. They took down the curtain and climbed up on chairs and waved their arms around at the top of the door, but nobody saw them and nobody heard them because nobody ever went near the teacher's room. They were all pretty mad, especially the district supervisor, and Mrs. Wenlikin was hysterical by the time somebody let them out. By that time, too, they were all worn out and hoarse from yelling and dizzy from waving their arms around in the air. Who finally let them out was Imogene. She said that she stood around trying to decide what to do, and that made Mrs. Wenlikin hysterical all over again. What to do, she said. Open the door and let us out is what you do. But it's the teacher's room, Imogene said, looking shocked, as if she had this rule burned into her brain. We're not allowed in the teacher's room. You're not allowed to let people out of the teacher's room, Mrs. Wenlikin hollered. Then the district supervisor got mad at Mrs. Wenlikin. This child has saved the day, she said. We ought to thank her. And let me tell you, there are plenty of schools in the district where the students spend every waking minute trying to break into the teacher's room or sneak into the teacher's room. You wouldn't believe the wild tales I've heard. Now here's a student who seems to understand that teachers need a little privacy. I hope you have more girls and girl, boys and girls like, is it Imogene? We have five more exactly like her, one of the teachers said. The district supervisor said that was wonderful and nobody argued with her. Too tired, I guess, from jumping up and down yelling for help. The whole thing got in the newspaper. School personnel locked in the third floor room, he said, released by alert student. It didn't name the alert student, but it named everybody else who was there except Kenneth Weaver, Charlie said. It doesn't say anything about Kenneth Weaver. That proves it, Charlie, I said. He never was in there. Why in the world would Kenneth Weaver be in the teacher's room, mother said. That whole family moved to Toledo. Did they take Kenneth, Charlie asked. Certainly they took Kenneth. Who would move away and leave their children? Mr. Herdman, I said, but Mother said it, that was different. Alice Wenlikin cut out the newspaper article and gave it to Imogene. I thought you'd want to keep it, she said, since it's about you. Of course, nobody knows it's about you because they didn't print your name. I wonder why they didn't print your name. 
They didn't print Kenneth's name either, Imogene said. So what? So Kenneth wasn't there, Alice said. Imogene stuck her nose right up against Alice's nose, which naturally made Alice nervous and also cross-eyed. Why do you think I opened the door to that room, she said. You think I opened the door to let all those teachers out? Who cares if they never got out? I let Kenneth out. My mother was in there, Alice said, and she did see Kenneth. Did you ask her? No, because I know Kenneth Weaver is in Toledo. He is now, Imogene said. That was a typical herdman, too shifty to figure out, and Alice didn't even try. Aside from congratulating Imogene, the district supervisor said that the worst part of being shut up in there for an hour and a half was the furniture. Lumpy old sofa, she said, broken down chairs, terrible lighting. It doesn't surprise me that the door was broken. Everything in that room is broken. So the teachers got a new sofa and chairs, and the furniture store donated a new rug, and they painted the walls and fixed the door and bought new curtains and a big green plant. They left the door open, too, for a couple of days so everybody could see the new stuff, which just went to prove, Alice said, that there's nobody hidden in there and never was. Imogene shrugged. Sh suit yourself. Charlie was feeling brave, too. Where would they be? There's no place for them. Sure there is, Imogene pointed. How about that? The plant that ate Chicago. The plant, Mother said that evening. Well, I would have chosen some normal kind of plant like a fern, but I guess they wanted something scientific for the teacher's room. The plant is a Venus flytrap. It eats flies, swallows them right up. Charlie looked at me, his eyes wide, and I knew what he was thinking. That maybe you could say the password by accident, disappear into the teacher's room, and never be seen again because of death by plant. It eats flies, Charlie, I said. Nothing but flies. Well, after all, it's just a plant, Mother said. It doesn't know flies from hamburger. I guess it eats anything it can get a hold of. Once Charlie spread that word around, you would normally have kids lining up to feed stuff to the plant. Pizza, potato chips, M&M cookies. And they would probably have had to keep cool, had to keep the door locked and put a big sign that said, private, keep out, teachers only. But none of this happened because nobody would go near the teacher's room, not even to watch the plant eat lunch. When the district supervisor came back to see the new furniture, she mentioned this and said that teachers could thank that thoughtful girl, what was her name, Imogene, for all the peace and privacy. I guess she was right in a way, but I didn't see any teachers rushing to thank Imogene, and never mind how much I needed to find a compliment for her, I certainly couldn't write down, Imogene Herman is thoughtful, no matter what the district supervisor said. The Best School Year Ever, Chapter 6 Once a year we had to take an IQ test, and a psychology test, and an aptitude test, which showed that what you might grow up to be if the Herdmans let you get out of Woodrow Wilson School alive. But the only test the Herdmans ever bothered to take was the eye test. This surprised everybody because it meant at least they knew the letters of the alphabet. You had to cover up one eye with a little piece of paper and read the letters on a chart. And then cover up the other eye and read them again. If you couldn't do it, it meant that you had to have glasses. Sometimes it just meant that you were scared, like Lester Yeagle. If you don't do it right, Gladys Herdman told Lester, it means your eyes are in backwards and they have to take them out and put them in the other way. This made Lester so nervous 
that he couldn't tell L from M or X from K, and when the doctor said, well, let's just switch eyes, he went all to pieces and had to go lie down in the nurse's room till his mother could come and get him. Besides having three other kids and a baby, Mrs. Eagle was a school bus driver, so she couldn't waste time just letting Lester be hysterical, but Lester was too hysterical to tell her what happened. All he said was, Herdman. Which one, Mrs. Eagle said. Which one did it? And Lester said Gladys did it. Did what, the nurse wanted to know. Gladys wasn't even there. I don't know what, Mrs. Eagle said, and I can't wait around to find out because I had to leave the baby with the Avon lady and it's almost time to drive the school bus. Come on, Lester, honey. Maybe you can find out, she told the nurse. Of course, Gladys said she didn't do anything, and the eye doctor said he certainly didn't do anything. But I got a look at the kid's braces, he said, and I'll bet that's his problem. I didn't think so. Having braces was no problem. Not having braces was a problem. Gloria Coburn's little sister got braces, and Gloria didn't, and Gloria cried and carried on for weeks. I'll grow up ugly with an overbite, she said, and she didn't even know what for sure what one was. She just wanted braces like everyone else. That night, the nurse called Mrs. Eagle to say that apparently Gladys didn't do anything to Lester. We think the trouble may be with this bla- braces, she suggested. What braces, Mrs. Eagle said. Lester doesn't have braces, but then she went and looked in his mouth and she nearly died. What have you got in there, she yelled. What is that? It looks like paper clips. Sure enough, Lester had paper clips bent around his teeth and he got hysterical all over again because his mother pried them off. The nurse said she never heard of paper clips, but you know they all want to have braces or bands or something and they don't know how much braces cost. Well, these cost 35 cents, Mrs. Eagle said. According to Lester, Gladys Herman put them on him, and that's what she charged him. And let me tell you, that kid better never try to get on my bus or any other Herman's either. Getting thrown off the bus was almost the worst thing that could happen to you. You had to go to school anyway, no matter what. So if you got thrown off the bus, it meant that your father had to hang around and take you, or your mother had to stop whatever she was doing and take you. So you got yelled at right and left. You even got yelled at when it happened to someone else. Don't you get thrown off the bus, your mother would say. Mrs. Herdman probably never said this, but she didn't have to worry about it anyways. The Herdmans never got thrown off a bus because nobody ever let them on one. Sometimes, though, they would hang around what would have been their bus stop if they had one, smoking cigars and starting fights and telling little kids that the bus was full of bugs. Big bugs, Gladys told Maxine Cooper's little brother, Donald. Didn't you ever hear them? They chomp through anything to get food. You better give me your lunch, Donald, or Donald, I'll take it to school for you. Of course, that was the end of Donald's lunch. But at least, Maxine said, it was just a day-old bologna sandwich and some carrot sticks. So they probably wouldn't do that again. They're just jealous, Alice told her, because they have to walk while everybody else gets to ride and be warm and comfortable. Come on, Alice, I said. If you think the school bus is warm and comfortable, you must be out of your mind. But I'm a Jean Herdman was standing right behind us, so Alice ignored me and said again how wonderful it was to ride the school bus and how she would hate to be the Herdman's 
who couldn't ride the school bus because they were so awful. After that, they began to show up every morning at Maxine's bus stop, looking sneaky and dangerous, like some outlaw gang about to hold up the stagecoach. But they don't do anything, Maxine said, looking worried. They just stand around. It's scary. It scared Donald all night, and after three or four days, he wouldn't even come out of the door. So Maxine stood on her front porch and yelled, My mother says for you to go home. We can't go home, Imogene yelled back. We have to go to school. Then they all nodded at each other. Maxine said, just as if they were this big, normal family of ordinary kids who got up and brushed their teeth and combed their hair and marched out ready to learn something. Maxine felt pretty safe on her own porch, so she said, then why don't you just get on the bus and go? Get on your bus, Imogene said. Get on bus six. And Gladys hollered that she wouldn't get on bus six if it was the last bus in the world. And Leroy said, me neither. And then when the bus came, Maxine told us they all ran behind the McCarthy's front hedge and just stood there staring at us. What did Mrs. Eagle... I do, I asked. She yelled at them. Don't you kids even think about getting my, on my bus? And Ollie said, I'll never get on bus six. He said it twice. Listen, Maxine leaned forward and lowered her voice. I think the herdmans are scared of the bus. This was the craziest thing I had ever heard. It's just a bus, I said. I know that, Maxine said, but it's my bus and I have to ride on it. And I don't want to ride on a doomed bus. This sounded crazy too, but nobody laughed because if the Herdmans were scared of Bus 6, it was the only thing in the world they were scared of, so you had to figure they must know something no one else knew. Whatever it was, they weren't telling, but every day they were at the stop, whispering and shaking their heads. Charlie thought they were stealing pieces of the bus, one little piece at a time, and someday the whole bus would fall apart and scatter kids all over the street. Eugene Preston brought in a copy of Amazing Comics about a robot bus that suddenly began to go backwards and sideways and turn itself over and lock all its doors so that people were trapped inside yelling and screaming. In the comic book, the mighty Marvel showed up and rescued everybody, but Eugene said he wouldn't want to count on the mighty Marvel if he was up against the Herdmans. I just know something's going to happen, Maxine said. I keep hearing this strange noise on the bus. I don't know how she could hear anything except kids hollering, but Eloise Albright said she heard a strange noise too. Some kids said they smelled something on the bus, but who doesn't? Egg sandwiches? Poison ivy medicine? Alice Wenlikin's Little Princess perfume? Lester finally asked his mother if there was anything wrong with their bus, but she just said yes. It's full of kids. Then bus six was assigned to take the third grade to a dairy farm to study cows, and Ollie Herdman refused to go. Not me, Ollie said. Not on that bus. Of course, this was good news for the cows, and the teacher was pretty happy, but the rest of the third grade was scared to death. Boomer Malone's little sister, Gwenda, said the suspense was awful, waiting for the bus to blow up or turn over, and between that and having to milk a cow, the whole third grade was wiped out for the rest of the day. By this time, Maxine was a nervous wreck, along with Donald and Lester and everybody else on bus six. More and more kids were feeling sick to their stomach and then feeling fine as soon as the bus left. 
and they all said the same thing. They were scared to ride the bus because the herdmans wouldn't get on it. What kind of reason is that, my mother wanted to know. Of course they won't get on the bus. Thelma Yagel won't let them on the bus. Nobody wants them on the bus. Something bad is going to happen, Charlie told her, and the herdmans know what it is. That's why they won't get on. They know bus six is doomed. Doomed, my mother stared at him. You watch too much television. Is that what everybody thinks? We said yes. Then why doesn't somebody just put the Hermans on the bus and make them ride it, mother said. Since it wasn't my bus, I thought that was a good idea. And so did Charlie. And so did Mr. Crabtree, I guess, because that's what he did. We have to ride your bus, Lester Gladys said. She grinned this big grin so Lester could see all her teeth, all shiny with paper clips. The principal said, I thought you were scared to ride this bus, Maxine told Imogene. You said it was doomed. I didn't say that, Imogene told her. You said that. She climbed on the bus and walked up next, walked up and down the aisle, picking out a seat next to some victim. It looks all right to me. Mrs. Yeagle was pretty mad at first, but she told my mother it wasn't all bad to have the Herbins on the bus. They told everybody to shut up, she said, and everybody did. Not for long, though, Claude and Leroy stole a bunch of baby turtles from the pet store and took them on the bus and put them down some kid's shirts. Leroy said later that he was amazed what happened. He thought the turtles were dead, and he was going to take them back to the pet store and complain. The turtles weren't dead. They probably saw who had them and decided to stay in their shells till they were big enough to bite back. But it was nice and warm inside the shirts. So they began to stick their, stick their heads out and crawl around. Of course, nobody knew they had turtles down their backs. Nobody knew what they had down their backs. But Donald Cooper thought it was the big bugs hungry and tired of peanut butter sandwiches. I've got the big bugs on me, he yelled. And right away, the other kids began to yell and scream and jump up and down and thrash around. So Mrs. Yeagle had to stop the bus and get everybody settled down. It was another week before all the turtles came out from under the seats and behind the seat backs. So it was a good thing that they were so little to begin with and didn't grow very fast. Once the Herdmans had collected all the turtles, they didn't get off the bus. They got off the bus and never came back. Don't want to ride this dumb bus, Ralph muttered. And I guess that was the real truth. They just wanted to get on the bus, take over the territory, wham a few kids, Pick out the best lunch, Gwenda Malone's usually, because Gwenda always had two desserts and no healthy food, and then get off the bus and stay off, which they did. For once, though, they weren't the only ones who got what they wanted. Lester's baby teeth fell out like popcorn. All those paper clips, Mrs. Diego said, and his second teeth came in all crooked and sideways, so he had more braces and bigger braces and fancier braces than anybody in Woodrow Wilson's school and maybe the whole world. The Best School Year Ever, Chapter 7 When Luella McCluskey's mother went to work part-time at the telephone company, she let Luella babysit her little brother Howard again during, vaca during spring vacation. Just don't you let the herdsmans get him this time, she said. He's got hair now, so they can't draw all over his head, but I don't know what else they might do. Howard had hair all right, but it was no big improvement because it started way above his ears and grew straight up like grass. 
If it was up to me, Luella said, I'd shave his head and let him start all over. Just mention that to Leroy, I said. Luella turned pale. My mother would kill me, and I'd never get to watch television or go to the movies for the rest of my life. Luella kept Howard out of sight for the whole time, but when school started again, the regular babysitter quit, so Mrs. McCluskey got special permission for Luella to bring Howard to school. Just for a few days, she said, just till I find someone else. Now what do I do, Luella said. I can't learn compound fractions and watch out for Howard all the time, and he'll be right there in the same room with I'm a Jean Herdman. She was really worried, and you couldn't blame her. So I wasn't too surprised when she showed up with Howard on a leash. Miss Kemp was pretty surprised, though. Is that necessary, Luella, she asked. After all, your little brother is our guest here in the sixth grade. Is that how we want to treat a guest class? Some kids said no, but a lot of kids said yes because they figured Howard was going to be a pain in the neck. So when Miss Kemp spent 10 minutes talking about manners and hospitality, but I guess she figured Howard might be a pain in the neck too because she didn't make Luella untie him. She did make her get a longer leash though because Howard got knocked on his bottom every time he tried to go somewhere. He better learn not to do that, Imogene Herdman said. Claude had to learn not to do that. Miss Kemp looked at her. Not to do what? Not to go past the end of the leash. Why was Claude on a leash? Because we didn't have a dog, Imogene said. Miss Kemp frowned and sort of shook her head, the way you do when you got water in your ears and everything sounds strange and far away. But she didn't ask to hear any more, and you couldn't blame her. Luella poked me. If they wanted a dog, she said, they could just go to the animal rescue. That's where we got our dog. That might be okay for Luella, but I didn't think the animal rescue people would give the herdsmen's a rescue goldfish, let alone a whole dog, and the herdsmen's probably knew it. Maybe they even went there and said, we want a dog, and the animal rescue said, not on your life. So then I guess they just looked around and said, okay, Claude, you be the dog. And Claude was the dog. Till he got tired of it or they got tired of it. You had to wonder what he did when he was the dog. Bite people? Maybe except they had Gladys to do that. Boomer Malone thought he might bark and guard the house. From what I asked, Boomer shrugged. I don't know. Robbers? Boomer, who are the main robbers around here? Oh yeah, he nodded. They are. Kids who didn't have dogs thought he might come when somebody called him or sit up and beg or roll over or fetch papers. Kids who did have dogs said their dogs barked to get in and barked to get out and chased cars and swiped food off the table and tore up the neighbor's trash and all those things sounded more like Claude. You could see, though, how he would get tired of it. He probably got tired of being on a leash, Alice said. Not like some people I know. She meant Howard. Alice had already told Luella what she thought about Howard. I tried to teach your little brother to read, she said, so he would be ready for kindergarten like I was. But I don't think they'll even let him in kindergarten. He's pretty dumb. He's too little to be dumb, Luella grumbled. If you want to teach him something, you could teach him to go to the bathroom. Well, I knew that wouldn't happen because Alice wouldn't even say the word bathroom. It's a good thing you could just raise your hand to be excused because if Alice had to say where she was going, she would never go and I don't know what would happen to her. Dumb or not, Howard 
was okay for such a little kid stuck in the sixth grade. He had lots of paper and crayons and little boxes of cereal to eat, and different people brought him different things to play with and look at. Alice showed up with great big pieces of cardboard that said A and B and C. But Howard didn't like those much. He scribbled all over them, which Alice said just proved how dumb he was and that he, he didn't even recognize the alphabet. He'll never get into kindergarten, she said again. To hear Alice, you would think getting into kindergarten was better than getting into heaven and a whole lot harder. They'll never let him in with that, she said the first time she saw Harold's blanket. And for once, you had to think she might be right. Howard's blanket was gross. Luella said it used to be blue and it used to have bunnies, but now it just looked like my father's car washing rig. He has to have it, Luella said. If he didn't have his blanket, Miss Camp would probably have to throw him out. If he doesn't have his blanket, he cries and yells and jumps up and down. And if he still doesn't have his blanket, he holds his breath and turns purple. Right away, Boomer Malone scooped up the blanket and sat on it which would have caused a big argument except that everyone wanted to see Howard turn purple. It was recess and there was already a bunch of kids gathered around Howard at one end of the playground. And naturally, more kids came to see what was going on. And by the time Howard quit hollering and began to hold his breath, half the Woodrow Wilson school was there trying to see over and around people. What's he doing, I heard someone say. Is he purple yet? He wasn't and I didn't think he'd live to be purple with his eyes popping out of his popping and all his little head veins standing out. Luella, I said, do something. He's going to explode. No, he won't, she said. He never does. You can't explode from holding your breath. It's a scientific fact. He won't even pass out. You'll see. I didn't want to see what if Luella was wrong. But it didn't matter anyway because all of a sudden Imogene Herman charged up, shoving kids out of the way right and left and began to pound on Luella. You said he would turn purple, she said. Look at him. He's not purple. I can't stand around here all day waiting for him to turn purple. Here, kid. She threw Howard his blanket and Howard let out one big, loud, shuddery sob. Then he went on sobbing and hiccuping and hugging his blanket. While Imogene stalked off and the whole big crowd of kids grumbled at Luella as if it was her fault. I should just take his blanket away right now, Luella said, and let everybody look at him, and that would be that. But as far as I know, he never had to hold his breath two times so close together, and I don't know what would, what that would do to him. I thought it would probably kill him, so I was glad she didn't do it. But I knew plenty of kids would do it if they got the chance. My mother said it better not be me or Charlie if we knew what was good for us. That poor child has been scribbled on and scrubbed with scouring powder. He's been bald and shiny-headed, and now that hair he got looks as if someone planted it. Isn't that enough for one little boy? Either Imogene agreed with my mother, or else she had plans to exhibit Howard at some later date. See the amazing purple baby, 25 cents, and didn't want him used up. From then on, she kept one eye on Howard and the other eye on his blanket. And when Wesley Potter tried to snatch Howard's blanket, he never knew what hit him. Imogene smacked Wesley flat and then stood him up and held him by the ears and said, You leave that blanket alone and you leave that kid alone or I'll wrap your whole head in chewing gum so tight they'll have to peel it off along with all your hair and your eyebrows and your lip skin and everything. 
That took care of Wesley and everybody else who heard it, but it made Luella nervous. Why is she being nice to Howard, Luella said. Why did she get his blanket back? That's twice she's gotten Howard's blanket back. Why? I didn't know why, but I knew she wouldn't have to do it again because nobody wants to go through life wrapped in gun, in gum or skin bald. And that would be your choice. Maybe she likes him, I said. Why would she like him, Luella said. I don't even like him, and he's my own brother. But that's normal, I said. I'm not crazy about Charlie either. If Howard was somebody else's brother, you'd like him. I like him. There's nothing not to like unless he is your brother, and you have to bring him to school and watch him. Watch out for him and keep him on a leash and all. Keep him on a leash, Luella repeated. Remember what Imogene said? They kept Claude on a leash because they didn't have a dog. So? Well, they still don't have a dog. And here's Howard already on a leash. Oh, Luella squealed. Imogene is going to make him their dog, and my mother will kill me. Come on, Luella, I said. You can't make a person be a dog. They could pretend Howard is their dog, but... Just look at Howard, Luella said. He'll pretend anything Imogene wants him to. This was true. Howard was hugging his blanket and feeling his one favorite corner, which was even rattier than the whole rest of the blanket. And looking at Imogene the way you look at the tooth fairy handing out $10 a tooth. She'll feed him dog biscuits and teach him to bite, Luella moaned. Maybe he'll bite Gladys, I said, and there's nothing wrong with dog biscuits. Everybody eats dog biscuits at least once to see what they taste like. I personally didn't care for them, but when Charlie was little, he was crazy about this one brand called Puppy Pleasers. I once asked him how they tasted, and he knew exactly. If you take a chocolate bar to the beach, he said, and put it in the sand and let it melt, and then pick up the melted chocolate bar and the sand and stick it in the freezer, and when it's frozen, bust it up into little pieces, is how Puppy Pleasers taste. At the time, I thought Charlie would either die of grit or slowly turn to sand from the feet up, and I didn't know we, what we would do with him. Stand him up in the backyard, maybe, and plant flowers around him? I didn't know what the herdsmen's would do with their dog, Howard, either. Whenever Charlie and I asked for a dog, my mother always said, What are you going to do with him? And we never knew what to say. We thought the dog would do it all, and we would just hang around and watch. Mother said that's exactly what she thought we thought. When you find a dog that's smart enough to take care of itself and let itself in and out of the house and answer the phone, let me know, she said. Luella said we'd have to watch Imogene or else she'll try to run off with Howard and take him home and name him after, name him some dog name like Rover or Spot. Luckily, she never got the chance. Mrs. McCluskey got her wires crossed at the telephone company and shut down the whole system for a half an hour. She never knew a thing like that could happen, she said, and it made her so nervous that she just quit her job right on the spot. And after that, Luella didn't have to bring Howard to school anymore. This was a big relief to Luella, and you could tell it made Miss Camp happy too. But she gave a little speech anyway about how we would miss Howard and how he'd be a big part of the sixth grade experience and how we would always remember him. Sounds like he died, Imogene muttered. She was mad, I thought, because of wasting all her good deeds, getting Howard's blanket back and making kids leave him alone, and then not getting anything for it, like a substitute dog, if that was what she wanted. There is one thing Miss Kemp went on. 
It seems Howard went off without his blanket. Has anyone seen Howard's blanket? No one had, or else no one would admit they had. Not with Imogene sitting there blowing this huge bubble of gum out and in and out and in, ready to park it on anyone who looked guilty. It's too bad you can't study bubblegum and get graded for it because Imogene would get straight A's. Her bubbles were so big and so thin, you could see her whole face through the bubble, like looking at somebody through their own skin. What if we can't find it, I asked Zoella. We better find it, she said, or else Howard will go crazy because all he does is sob and cry and hold his breath and hiccup. He had also turned purple, she said, and he had almost passed out, so you had to figure out figure that if somebody didn't turn up with Howard's blanket soon, he'd never make it to the next week, let alone kindergarten. We looked for the blanket off and on the rest of the day, although Alice said it would be better if we didn't find it. It's old and horrible and full of germs, she said. And she told Luella, you should be glad it's lost. Howard will thank you someday. This is what your mother says when she makes you wear ugly shoes, she said. This will give your toes room to grow and you'll thank me someday. Hearing Alice say things like this makes you want to squirt her with canned cheese. Even Miss Kemp does, I think, because she said, Alice, I can assure you that by the time Howard gets to someday, he won't even remember his blanket. Somebody muttered, don't be too sure, I'm a gene. There was good news the next day. Howard had lived through the night without going crazy or purple. And even better news when Imogene showed up with his blanket. She said she found it at the bus stop underneath the bush. Nobody to believe this. The herdsmen stole everything that wasn't nailed down, just out of habit. Why not Howard's blanket? But so what, Luella said, as long as Imogene brought it back. The next day, the art teacher, Miss Harrison, stopped Luella in the hall and gave her a bunch of stubby crayons for Howard. I just heard about your little brother's blanket, she said. Luella, you aren't going to find it because I threw it away. The last time we had art, I used it to wipe the pastels off the chalkboard and then just threw it away. I'm really sorry, but I didn't know it was Howard's blanket. It looked like my car washing rig. Luella shook her head. We found Howard's blanket. Miss Harrison shook her head. You're just saying that to make me feel better. No, as soon as I heard it was missing, I knew what I had done and where it was, gone in the trash. She's wrong, Luella said. Maybe you're wrong, I said. Luella thought for a minute. Well, Howard wouldn't be wrong, and he thinks it's his blanket. You can't get it away from him. We did get it away from him, but he had to wait till he was asleep. Then he had to. Then we had to unfasten his fingers and quickly give the old worn-out bathrobe of Luella's. See, it's the same blanket. It certainly looked like the same blanket. Old, faded, sort of dirty gray with one corner that was especially old and faded and dirty gray. There was something else, too. A capital H scribbled and wobbly and almost faded out. It even has his initial on it, I said. H for Howard. Huh? Huh? Luella said. There's no initial on Howard's blanket. I started to show her H, and then I saw the other initial. It was an I. I-H. There was only one I-H in the whole Woodrow Wilson school. I'm a Jean Herdman. Luella, I said. I'm a Jean didn't find this blanket underneath the bush or anywhere else. This was her very own blanket. Luella refused to believe this, and you couldn't blame her. It was hard enough just to imagine that I'm a Jean was ever a baby, let alone a baby with her own soft blanket to drag around.
and hang on to. Besides, Luella said, if it was hers, she wouldn't give it away. The herdsmen's never gave anything away in their whole life. But what about the initials, I said. They aren't really initials, Luella said. I think they're just what's left of the bunny pattern. I guess Luella believed this because I knew better. They were Imogene's initials, all right, and this was Imogene's blanket. Maybe somebody took it from her when she was a baby, and maybe she yelled and held her breath and turned purple. So she would know exactly how Howard felt. She would be sympathetic. I could hardly wait to write down, write this down on the compliments for classmates page in my notebook, but it looked too weird. I'm a Jean Herdman, sympathetic. Nobody would believe this, and I would have to explain it to I'm, and I'm a Jean would probably wrap my head in chewing gum if I told everyone that she once had a blanket with a favorite chewed corner and everything. The best school year ever, chapter eight. Two or three times a year, all the herdsmen would be absent at the same time, and it was like a vacation. You knew you wouldn't get killed at recess, you wouldn't have to hand over your lunch, and you wouldn't have to hide your money if you had any. We even had easy lessons when they were absent. Boomer Malone said the teachers did that on purpose to give us all time to heal and get our strength back. But my mother said it was probably the teachers who had to get their strength back. Nobody knew why they were absent. Nobody cared. They didn't have to bring a note from home either like everyone else to say what was the matter. Why bother, the school nurse told my mother. They would write it themselves. No one could read it, and it would be a lie. Besides, if they ever did have something contagious, they wouldn't stay home. They'd come here and breathe on everybody. You never knew when they would be absent either, but nobody thought this made any difference till they were all absent on a fire drill day and our school won the fire department speed and safety award. I can't believe this improvement, the fire chief said. Last time it took you 34 minutes to vacate the building. What happened? You know what happened, Mr. Crabtree said. We lost half the kindergarten. Ollie Herdman led them out a basement door and took them all downtown. I mean, what happened this time? Nothing happened this time, Mr. Crabtree said, because Ollie isn't here. Neither is Ralph or Imogene or Leroy or Claude or Gladys. Where are they? They're absent, Mr. Crabtree said. The chief sighed. I thought maybe they moved away. Oh, well, he sighed again and said, in that case, he'd better go back to the firehouse and be ready for anything. Everyone was pretty excited about the speed and safety award because we had never won anything before and probably never would again till the last herdman was gone from Woodrow Wilson School. So far, though, we could only be excited about the honor of it because we wouldn't get the actual award till Fire Prevention Day. There was a Fire Prevention Day every year, but all we ever got were Smokey the Bear stickers. So this was a big step up. There would be a special assembly with the fire chief and the mayor there, and the newspaper would send someone to take pictures and interview, interview kids about fire prevention. Of course, fire prevention was the last thing the herdsmen knew anything about, except to be against it, I guess. So you had to hope the reporter wouldn't pick one of them to interview. You had to hope they wouldn't show up for this big event wearing beer advertisement shirts, t-shirts. You had to hope they wouldn't show up. Maybe they won't, Charlie said. Maybe they don't even know we won the award. It's true that the Herdmans didn't know 
much if you count things like who invented the telephone, but they always knew about what was going on around them, which in this case was plenty. There were signs and posters about fires and firemen everywhere. All the blackboards said Woodrow Wilson Elementary School Speed and Safety Award winners. Kids were making bookmarks and placemats, writing poems and stories about our big accomplishment. We didn't even have hot dogs and hamburgers at lunch. We had fire dogs and smoky burgers. How could the herdmen miss, herdmen's miss all this? They didn't. Somebody in the second grade brought in this great big stuffed bear and they stood it up in the hall with a sign around its neck. Smokey says congratulations to the Woodrow Wilson School. And the very next day, the bear was was with was bare with its paws full of matches and cigarette lighters, firecrackers in its lap, and a half-smoked cigar sticking out of its mouth. Smokey the fire bug bear. Oh, that's so disgusting, Alice said. What if someone reports it to the fire department? We might not even get the award, as usual. They're going to mess everything up and ruin the whole assembly, hitting people and tripping people and folding little kids up in the seats. I guess Mr. Crabtree came in the back door that day and didn't know what had happened to the bear because the first announcement was all about the outstanding fire prevention display by the second grade. I want every student to stop by the second grade room and see our very own Smokey the Bear, he said. And let's be sure to thank those second graders for this. Then there were some whispers and a thwip sound and somebody put a hand over the microphone, but you could still hear voices and a few words. Matches, horrible wet cigar, get rid of that bear. Then the secretary, Mrs. Parker, got on and shuffled some papers and cleared her throat and said that Mr. Crabtree had been called away suddenly and she would finish the announcements. Picture money was due by Friday. A Fred Flintstone lunchbox had been left on bus four. There would be a meeting of the fire safety team in the lunchroom after school. Right away, Alice wrote this down on a piece of paper, as if she had so many important engagements that she had to write them all down. Imogene poked me. What's the fire safety team? It's for the assembly, I said. It's some kids who are going to demonstrate what to do in case of a fire. Imogene shrugged. Throw water on it and get out of the way. Then she squinched up her eyes. What kids? Who's on the team? I was going to say I don't know, or who cares? Something so loose that Imogene wouldn't want to waste her time. But as usual, Alice had to blow her own horn. I am, she said. There's ten of us plus two alternates in case somebody gets sick at the last minute. It's not unusual for people to get sick at the last minute if they're mixed up with the herdsmen's. So that got Imogene's attention, but it wasn't enough to hold her attention till Alice said, we're going to have t-shirts that say fire safety team Woodrow Wilson School, so we'll all look alike in the picture. I didn't even bother to say shut up, Alice. It was too late. You could tell that Imogene was already seeing herself in the fire safety t-shirt and in the picture, and there was only one thing you didn't know for sure. Who, besides the two alternates was going to get sick at the last minute. Naturally, Imogene wasn't the only herdman who shut up in the lunchroom after school. They were all there, slouching around, ready for action, draped over the table, scraping gum from underneath the benches, chewing it, and this was old gum, shiny with germs and hard enough to tear your teeth out. 
There was at least one kid from every grade on the fire safety team, and they all had one eye on the herdsmen's, so Mr. Crabtree couldn't just ignore them, which is probably what he wanted to do. School's over, Ralph, Mr. Crabtree said. I'm a Jean Ollie. Unless you people have some reason to be here, it's time to go home. We're just having a meeting. We came to sign up, Ralph said. Sign up for what? This is the fire safety team. Right, Leroy said. We want to sign up for that. It was on the announcements Gladys put in about the meeting after school. Mr. Crabtree opened his mouth and then he shut it again because there wasn't anything he could do about this. He had made a major rule that anybody at Woodrow Wilson School could sign up for anything they wanted to, no exceptions. And he made another rule that anybody, everybody had to sign up for something whether, or whether they wanted to or not. So you had kids who signed up for two or three things and you had kids who signed up for everything and you had kids who wouldn't sign up at all till their teacher or their mother or Mr. Crabtree made them be something. What you didn't have was a herdman signing up for anything till now. My mother said it was a good idea for the herdsmen to be on the fire safety team. Who needs to know more about fire safety than those kids, she said. Some people said at least this way you could keep an eye on them during the assembly. My father said it was like inviting a lot of bank robbers to, to demonstrate how to rob the bank. Three kids quit the fire safety team right away before anything could happen to them, but their mothers said they ought to get the t-shirts anyway in view of the circumstances. Mr. Crabtree knew what circumstances they were talking about, herdsmen's, so he didn't even mention that. He just said he didn't have anything to do with the t-shirts. That's up to the PTA, he said. The PTA is providing the t-shirts for the fire safety team in honor of this special occasion. The president of the PTA said they weren't providing t-shirts for kids who quit the fire safety team. Mrs. Wenlikin said they better not be providing t-shirts for the herdsmen who had muscled their way onto the fire safety team. All anybody could talk about was t-shirts, but I agreed with Charlie who said he wouldn't be on the fire safety team if you paid him, not even for 50 t-shirts. I watched them practice, he said, and when Mr. Crabtree yells, Drop and roll. All the herdsmen drop on somebody, like in football. They dropped on Albert Palfrey and nearly squashed him flat, which wasn't all bad because I said Albert is that really fat kid, but Albert quit the fire safety team anyway. I've got enough trouble just being fat, he said. I don't want to be fat and dead both. At the last minute, two kids got sick, or said they did, and right away both the alternates quit, which didn't surprise anybody. You don't want to quit, Mr. Crabtree told them. This is a big opportunity. He meant it was an opportunity to take part in Pre Fire Prevention Day and get a t-shirt and have their picture taken. But it was also a bigger opp opportunity to get pounded two feet into the ground by the herdsmen. I can only be an alternate, Roberta Scott said. I can't actually be in it or anything. Roberta, that's what an alternate is, Mr. Crabtree said. It's your responsibility to be in it and everything. You too, Lonnie. Lonnie Hutchinson was the other alternate, and he said he had quit because of his asthma. Nice try, Lonnie, Mr. Crabtree said, but you don't have asthma. I know who all has asthma. I know who has pink eye and poison ivy and athlete's foot. Also coughs and colds and nervous stomach. 
Mr. Crabtree didn't mention any other diseases when Lonnie's mother called the school to say that Lonnie was sick with a rash. Mr. Crabtree didn't believe it. Too convenient, he said. It's probably finger paint or magic marker, something like that. Two or three weeks ago, I saw Leroy Herman walking around with red spots all over his face, looking for trouble. I just told him, Leroy, go wash your face. And the next time I saw him, the spots were gone. But it wasn't finger paint on Lonnie. It was chicken pox. And before you could say speed and safety award assembly, there wasn't anybody left to go to it. Mr. Crabtree wanted to postpone fire prevention day, but the fire chief said he couldn't do that. It's fire prevention day all over town, he said, all over the state. You can't just have your own fire prevention day whenever you want to. Tell you what, though, if you'll get a group, get together a small group of whatever kids you've got left, your fire safety team would be good and bring them down to the firehouse. We'll have the award presentation right there. We'll make it a big event. It turned out to be bigger, a bigger event than anybody expected because the pizza parlor ovens caught fire an hour before the presentation. They put the fire out right away, right away, but Mr. Santoro made all his customers leave because of the smoke, and most of them just followed the fire engine back to the firehouse and stayed for the presentation. Some people thought the fire was part of the presentation, especially when Mr. Santoro showed up with all his leftover pizza, and handed it out free. Everybody said it was a great way to advertise fire prevention, and they congratulated the mayor and the fire chief for thinking it up, and the fire chief congratulated Mr. Santoro for donating the pizza. The newspaper reporter got it all wrong, too. Mock fire stage to highlight fire prevention day, he wrote. Restaurant owner contributes pizza for large crowd, Attending award ceremony. School students honored for safety techniques. The honored students were, were that was left of the fire safety team. Ralph, Imogene, Leroy, Claude, Ollie, and Gladys. All there was a picture of them standing in front of the fire truck looking like a police lineup. You could imagine an officer saying, Now which one did it? The victim saying, I can't be sure. They all look alike. They did look alike, except for being different sizes. Plus, of course, they had on the famous matching t-shirts. If you didn't know better, Mother said, I would think this was the herdsman's being honored instead of the school. This turned out to be the general op opinion, and so many people called the newspaper to complain that they printed another story. Woodrow Wilson School, despite chicken pox academic, wins speed and safety award, which my father said was better than nothing, but not much. What does chicken pox have to do with it, he wanted to know, but my mother said he was just tired of watching Charlie and me scratch. Mrs. Wenlikin made Alice sit in a bathtub full of baking soda water so she wouldn't scratch and made her wear these white cotton gloves so she wouldn't scratch. And when Alice came back to school, besides having puckery seersucker skin, she was still wearing the gloves. I don't think that's necessary, Alice, Miss Kemp said. I have to wear them while I'm thinking, Alice told her, so I won't forget and scratch. If you scratch chicken pox, they get infected and leave scars. Not on Leroy, Imogene said. Not on Ollie, not on... Wait a minute, Miss Kemp said. Leroy, Ollie, I wasn't aware any of your family was absent during our epidemic. Oh, we weren't absent, Imogene said. Miss Kemp frowned. 
but you had chicken pox, she said. You mean, did I have chicken pox, Imogene said. This was like talking long distance to my grandmother without her hearing aid. And just like my grandmother, Miss Kemp didn't try to pin it down. If you have chicken pox, you can't come back without a note from your doctor, she said. And Imogene said, oh, okay, and got up and left. So no one ever knew for sure whether they did actually have chicken pox or how many of them had chicken pox or exactly when they had chicken pox. And no one ever knew for sure whether they came to school and breathed on everybody and ruined our big award assembly or whether they were all sick and stayed home on the fire drill day so we won the award in the first place. The best school year ever, chapter nine. The last day of school is pretty loose and they probably wouldn't even bother to have one except that's when you clean out your desk. If you didn't have to clean out your desk, Mr. Crabtree could just get on the PA system any old day in June and say, all right, this is the last day of school. Go on home, have a great summer, see you in September. But then everyone would go off and leave their smelly old socks and moldy mittens and melted Halloween candy and leftover sandwiches. Once a kindergarten gerbil got loose and climbed into Boomer Malone's desk and died there. Nobody knew what to do with the gerbil because like all the kindergarten animals, it had a name and a personality and we knew all about it from the notice on the bulletin board. Our friendly gerbil is missing. His name is Bob. If you see Bob, please return him to the kindergarten room. So this wasn't just any dead gerbil. This was friendly Bob. It didn't seem right to drop him in the trash. So Boomer took him back to the kindergarten room. We all thought the kindergarten would stop whatever it was doing, hunt up a cigar box, write a poem for Bob, and have a funeral. But, ac but according to Boomer, they couldn't care less. Not even the teacher, he reported. She took one look and said, Oh, that's not Bob, and dropped him in her trash basket. If there was a moral to this, I guess it was, don't show up with dead animals on the last day of school. You couldn't show up with live ones either anymore. We used to have a pet parade every year on the last day of school till the year Claude Herdman entered their cat. The Herdman's cat was missing one eye and part of an ear and most of its tail and all of whatever good nature it ever had. So you wouldn't expect it to win any prizes in a pet parade. If it was your cat, you'd probably try to clean it up a little, but you probably wouldn't whitewash it and then spray it with super hold hairspray which is what the Herdmans did. According to Claude, they thought it would win the most unusual pet prize, but it was too mad from being whitewashed and hairspray to do anything but attack. So the pet parade turned into a stampede of dogs and cats and turtles and hamsters and guinea pigs. Some kids held on to their animals, but most didn't. So there were cats up in trees and on top of telephone poles and dogs running off down the street barking and the herdsman's cat in the middle of it all, tearing around the playground, hissing and spitting and shedding flakes of whitewash. It took all day to get the cats down and the dogs back, and there were two hamsters that never did turn up. So that was the end of the pet parade, and it left a big empty spot in the day's activities, which the teachers had to fill up somehow. We had spelling bees and math marathons, or we stood up and said what we were going to do that summer or what we would do if we were king of the world. One year, everybody brought their collections. There were baseball cards and Cracker Jack prizes and bubblegum wrappers and belly button lint. 
The belly button lint came from Imogene Herdman, but she said she wouldn't recommend it as a hobby. I don't even collect it anymore, she said. This is leftover from when I used to collect it. I guess that was the last straw. Old belly button lint, because we never did that again. This year, there were no big surprises about what we would do on the last day. It was up on the blackboard. Compliments for classmates. And we had each drawn a name from the hat and had to think of more compliments for that one person. We've been thinking about this all year, Miss Kemp said. She probably knew that some kids had, but most kids hadn't. But now everybody would think about it in a hurry. And on the last day of school, she went on, we're going to find out what we've learned about ourselves and each other. I had finally thought of a word for Albert. Once you get past thinking fat, you can see that Albert's special quality is optimism. Because Albert actually believes he will be thin someday and says so. Another word could be determination or even courage. There were lots of good words for Albert, so I really hoped I would draw his name. I didn't. The name I drew was Imogene Herbman, and I had used up the one and only compliment I finally thought of for Imogene. Patriotic. Patriotic, my mother said. What makes you think Imogene is especially patriotic? When we do the Pledge of Allegiance, I said, she always stands up. Everybody stands up, Charlie said. If everybody sat down and only Imogene stood up, that would be patriotic. That would be brave, I said. Well, she would do that, Charlie said. I mean, she would do whatever everybody else didn't do. Would that make Imogene brave? I didn't really think so, but I had to have some more compliments, so I wrote it down. Patriotic, brave. Two days later, I still had just patriotic and brave, while other people had big, long lists. I saw the bottom of Joanne Turner's list sticking out of her notebook. Cheerful, good sport, graceful, fair to everybody. I wondered who that was. Maxine Cooper asked me how to spell cooperative and enthusiastic, so obviously she had a terrific list. Boomer must have drawn a boy's name because all his compliments came right out of the Boy Scout, Boy Scout rules. Thrifty, clean, loyal. I kept my eye on Imogene as much as possible, so if she did something good, I wouldn't miss it. But it was hard to tell with her what was good. I thought it was good that she got Boyd Liggett's head out of the bike rack, but Mrs. Liggett didn't think so. Mrs. Liggett said it was all the herdsman's fault in the first place. Ollie Herdman told Boyd to do it, she said. And then that Gladys got him so scared and nervous that he couldn't get out. And then along came Imogene. I could understand how Boyd got his head into the bike rack. He's only the in the first grade, plus he has a skinny head. But at first... I didn't know why he couldn't get it out. Then I saw why. It was his ears. Boyd's ears stuck right straight out from his head like handles. So his head and his ears were on one side of the bike rack and the rest of him was on the other. And kids were hollering at him and telling him what to do. Turn your head upside down, somebody said. And somebody else told him to squint his eyes and squeeze his face together. Boyd's sister Jolene tried to fold his ears and push them through, but that didn't work, even one at a time. Then she wanted half of us to get in front of him and push, and the other half to get behind and pull. He got his head through there, she said. There must be some way to get it back out. I didn't think pushing and pulling was the way Boyd looked ready to try anything. Then Gladys Herman really cheered him up. Going to have to cut off your ears, Boyd. 
she said, but maybe just one ear. Do you have a favorite one that you like to hear out of? You could tell that he believed her. If you're in the first grade with your head stuck through the bike rack, this is the very thing you think will happen. Several teachers heard Boyd yelling, Don't cut my ears off! And they went to tell Mr. Crabtree. Mr. Crabtree called the fire department, and while he was doing that, the kindergarten teacher stuck her head out the window and called to Boyd. Don't you worry, they're coming to cut you loose. But she didn't say who or how, and Gladys told him they would probably leave a little bit of ear in case he ever had to wear glasses. So Boyd was a total wreck when Imogene came along. She wanted to know how he got in there, in case she ever wanted to shove somebody else in the bike rack, probably. But Boyd was too hysterical to tell her, and nobody else knew for sure, so I guess she decided to get him loose first and find out later. Imogene scotch-taped his ears down and buttered his whole head with soft margarine from the lunchroom, and then she just pushed his head first one side and then the other, and, and it slid through. Of course, Boyd was a mess with butter all over his eyes and ears and up to up his nose. So Jolene asked to take him home. She made him walk away from her and she told him, as soon as you see mother, you'll yell, I'm all right, I'm all right. She looked at him again. You better tell you who you, you better tell her who you are too. Even so, Miss Leggett took one look and screamed and would have fainted, Jolene said, except she heard Boyd telling her that he was all right. What do you think of that? Mother asked my father that night. She buttered his head. I think that's resourceful, my father said. Messy, but re resourceful. That's like a compliment, isn't it? I asked my father. It's good to be resourceful. Certainly, he said. So I wrote that down, along with patriotic and brave. I thought we would just hand in our compliment papers on the last day of school, but Alice thought Miss Kemp would read three or four out loud. Some of the best ones, Alice said, meaning, of course, her own. And Boomer thought she would read the different compliments and we would have to guess the person. So when Miss Kemp said, now we're going to share these papers, it was no big surprise. But then she said, I think we'll start with Boomer. Laverne Morgan drew your name, Boomer. I want you to sit down in front of Laverne and listen to what she says about you. Laverne squealed and Boomer turned two or three different shades of red and all over the room, kids began to check their papers in case they would have to read out loud and some big lie, or worse, some really personal compliment. Laverne said that Boomer was smart and good at sports, but not stuck up about it, and friendly, and two or three other normal things. And I liked when you took the gerbil back to kindergarten that time, she said, in case they wanted to bury it. That was nice. It was nice, I thought, and not everybody would have done it either. To begin with, not everybody would have picked up the gerbil by what was left of its tail, let alone carry it all the way down the hall and down the stairs to the kindergarten room. Good boomer, I said when he came back to his seat, glad to get there. I, be I guess because he was all sweaty with embarrassment for being told nice things about himself face to face and in front of everybody. Next came Eloise Albright and then Luella and then Junior Jacobs and then Miss Kemp said, Let's hear about you, Beth. Joanne Turner drew your name. I remember Joanne Turner's paper. Cheerful, good sport, graceful, fair to everybody. And I wondered who that was. It was me. I knew we weren't supposed to say things about how you look, Joanne said. But I put down graceful anyways because I always notice how you stand up very straight and walk like some kind of dancer. I don't know if you can keep it up, 
But if you can, I think people will always admire the way you stand and walk. It was really hard walking back to my seat now that I was famous for it. But I knew if I did it now and and with everybody watching, I could probably keep up keep it up for the rest of my life. And if Joanne was right, be admired forever. This made me feel strange and loose and light. Like when you press your hands hard against the sides of a door. And when you walk away, your hands float up in the air all by themselves. I was still feeling that way three people later when Miss Kemp said it was Imogene's turn. To do what, Imogene said. To hear what Beth has to say about you. She drew your name. Imogene gave me this dark, suspicious look. No, I don't want to. You're going to hear good things, you know, Imogene, Miss Kemp said. But you could tell Miss Kemp wasn't too sure about that. And Imogene probably never heard any good things about herself. So she wasn't too sure either. That's okay, I said. I mean, if Imogene doesn't want to, I don't care. This didn't work. I guess Miss Kemp was curious like everybody else. I'm a Jean Herdman, Luella had just whispered. That's whose name you drew? How could you think of compliments for I'm a Jean Herdman? Well, you had to think of one, I said. We had to think of one compliment for everybody. Luella rolled her eyes. I said she was healthy. I didn't know anything else to say. Luella wasn't the only one who wanted to hear my I'm a Jean words. The whole room got quiet, and I was glad. Now that at the very last minute I had looked up resourceful in the dictionary. I put down that you're patriotic, I told Imogene, and brave, and resourceful, and cunning, and shrewd, and creative, and enterprising, and sharp, and inventive. Wait, she yelled. Wait a minute. Start over. Oh, honestly, Alice put in. You just copied out of the dictionary. They're all the same thing. And I went on ignoring Alice. I think it's good that you got Boyd's head out of the bike rack. Oh, honestly, Alice said again, but Miss Kemp shut her up. Of course, she didn't say shut up, Alice. She just said no one could really comment on what some anybody else said because it was very personal and individual. That's how Beth sees Imogene. Actually, it wasn't. Alice was right about the words. I did copy them out of the dictionary, so I wouldn't be the only person with three dumb compliments. And I didn't exactly connect them with Imogene except sharp because of her knees and elbows, which she used like weapons to leave you black and blue. But now, suddenly, they all turned out to fit. Imogene was cunning and shrewd. She was inventive. Nobody else thought of buttering Boyd's head or washing their cat at the laundromat. She was creative if you count, count drawing pictures on Howard and enterprising if you count charging money to look at him. She was also powerful enough to keep everybody away from the teacher's room forever and human enough to give Howard her blanket. Imogene was all the things I said she was and more. They were good things to be, depending on who it, who it was doing the inventing or the creating or the enterprising. If Imogene could keep it up, I thought, till she got to be civilized, if that ever happened, she could be almost anything she wanted to be in life. She could be Imogene Herdman, president, or of course, Imogene Herdman, jailbird, but it would be up to her. At the end of the day, Miss Kemp said, which was harder to give compliments or receive them, and everyone agreed it was really uncomfortable to have somebody tell you in public about the best hidden parts of you. Alice, however, made this long, big word speech about how it was harder for her to give compliments because she wanted to be very accurate and truthful. And not make things up, she said, looking at me. 
I didn't make things up, I told her later, except maybe brave. I don't know whether I'm a genius brave. You made her sound like some wonderful person, Alice said. And if that's not making things up, what is? When the bell rang, everybody whooped out to get started on summer. But Imogene grabbed me in the hall, shoved a magic marker in my face, and told me to write the words on her arm. On your arm, I said. That's where I keep notes, she said. And I could believe it because I could still see the remains of several messages. Something pizza, big rat, get Gladys. Get Gladys something, I wondered. No, probably just get Gladys. There was only room for one word on her skinny arm, so Imogene picked resourceful. It's the best one, she said. I looked it up, and I like it. It's way better than graceful. No offense. She turned her arm around, admiring the word. I like it a lot. I'm going to get it tattooed. I didn't ask who by... I didn't ask who by Gladys, probably. Charlie was waiting for me on the corner, looking gloomy. He always looks gloomy on the last day of school, and it's always for the same reason. He, It happened again, he said. Leroy Herdman didn't get kept back. Leroy Herdman will never get kept back, I told him. None of them will. He's going to be in my room forever, he groaned. What am I going to do? Charlie, I said, you're going to have to learn to be resourceful. How, he said. What is it? Ask Imogene, I said. I think it's going to be her best thing.